Welcome, everybody, again to another episode of the Blue Banter Podcast, a podcast where we're seeking to introduce the members of the RPCNA to the pastors of the RPCNA and to glean wisdom from men with ministry experience in the service of young and aspiring pastors. I am one of your co-hosts, Joe Smith. I'm the pastor of Westminster Reform Presbyterian Church in Westminster, Colorado. And my name is Aaron Murray, pastor of Marion Reform Presbyterian Church here in Marion, Indiana, the promised land of the North. And we have this uh, this day our guest, Dr. David Whitla, the church history professor at Reform Presbyterian Theological Seminary. David, welcome to the podcast. Great to be with you guys. Yeah, it's great to, to have you on here. And I just want to say one thing real quick. You know, as far as I can remember, Neither Joe or I were ever late to one of your classes, and we couldn't help but notice that uh, you were a few minutes late to the uh, podcast today. You know, it's just uh, interesting is all. That's why I'm glad this is not a live podcast, right? And nobody would have known that if you hadn't said it. Thank you very much. I I think I was two minutes late. I had an important pastoral engagement this morning, so Mm -hmm. uh, that's that's my excuse anyway. Mm -hmm. Well, either way, we're very uh, excited to have you uh, here on the podcast, and we'll uh, just kind of jump into the, the questions here. And this is not really a, a main question that uh, we have for you, um, but something we did want to talk about was recently uh, you served as an editor for uh, The Sum of Saving Knowledge, which was published by Crown and Covenant not too long ago. Um, the Sum of Saving Knowledge is not something that's really well known to a lot of people. So I wonder if you could just spend a few minutes telling us uh, what exactly it is and then why you, you saw a need to kind of uh, see this work uh, republished. Yeah, yeah, happy to do that. The, the sum of saving knowledge. Um, if you'd asked this question to a Presbyterian a hundred years ago, um, and you'd said nobody's ever heard of the sum of saving knowledge, probably most people would look at you funny and say, "Of course we know the sum of saving knowledge," because this book was really a, a household title for uh, for centuries. Uh, it was published in 1650, and it was bound together with the Westminster Confession and Catechisms, uh, and that kind of definitive volume that contains the covenants and all the directories that the Westminster Assembly of Divines uh, produced. But this is actually the only little book within that bound volume that was not written by uh, the Westminster Assembly. It was actually published by a couple of uh, Scottish Covenanter ministers, James Durham and David Dixon, and they had just got their hands on the new uh, Confession and Catechisms in 1647-48. They loved the content, but they felt it was a little dense for uh, for the average person in the pew. They, they thought the larger catechism was too long and dark, is the way they put it. Mm. Um, perhaps some of your listeners have uh, the same uh, concerns from time to time. So they said, why don't we, as pastors, put together a little summary of the soteriology contained in the Confession and Catechisms. And uh, that's what they did. And they called it the sum or summary of saving knowledge, which I guess in our parlance would mean what you need to know to be saved, a summary of what you need to know to be saved. And it's a fabulous little uh, summary of the covenant theology of the Confession and Catechisms, uh, but it's also written in a very pastoral way. A lot of people, um, you probably are aware, uh, compare our Westminster standards with, say, the Heidelberg Catechism mm-hmm. in the Continental tradition, and they say the thing they love about the Heidelberg, it's so personal, it's written in the first person, and so on, um, and uh, the Westminster Assembly didn't didn't do that. Well, the sum of saving knowledge uh, is written in that very personal way, and it confronts the reader, and actually challenges 
challenges them if they aren't Christians effectively to uh, to uh, pray a sinner's prayer. I know that's a, a maybe a, a scary thing to say on a Reformed podcast, but they actually put words in the mouths of the reader. Uh, make sure that you are trusting in Christ for salvation. So a very a very pastoral little volume, a great crash course in covenant theology. And my desire was to take this book and really do what the original authors intended for it, put it back in the hands of the people in the pew so they can have a good grasp of the theology uh, of the Westminster Standards. I should also just say that the, the Chronic Covenant, uh, they did a great job mm-hmm. with this publication. I mean, I'm I'm telling people this is this is the baby Yoda of the Chronic Covenant catalog. It's <laughs> a cute little green thing mm-hmm. uh, with, a, with a little um, uh, ribbon marker. Uh, it's a great uh, little book to have as a companion for your personal devotions. Um, we also put together a study guide for it, which you can download for free at the Chronic Covenant website. And we're really hoping that congregations are going to uh, maybe get into small groups and use this for their midweek uh, Bible study or uh, maybe a men's group or a, or a women's reading group or something like that. And uh, I think you'll find it is a very uh, rewarding volume. It's actually kind of nice also when, I mean, this isn't my book by any means. I've just tried to bring it out of obscurity and, and unleash it on the church again. But uh, we had no difficulty finding endorsements for this. And uh, the greatest endorsements we have are actually from a bunch of dead guys. Um, it's amazing how many of the great uh, Presbyterian leaders of the past just love this book. I mean, they they, they gush forth. Um, Robert Murray McShane, the great revival preacher, says this is the book the Lord used to convert him. That should be enough of, a, of a, an advertisement. And uh, I've dug up 12 or 13 Covenanter martyrs who actually on their scaffold speeches, they're, they're, you know, they're about to be hanged. And they're saying you need to read the sum of saving knowledge. So deathbed endorsements by uh, Presbyterian martyrs um, is another good reason to read this book. They find it to be an incredible help for their personal devotions and growth. And I think today's readers will as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. You can, uh, you can find this book on Crown and Covenant. It's uh, really affordable, only $11. It's like, what, 72 pages or so. So it's a pretty quick read, but a very, uh, very good read. So we'd commend our listeners, uh, go pick the baby Yoda up of the uh, <laughs> Westminster uh, documents. So if that's this is the, the uh, yeah, exactly. If that's the baby Yoda of uh, Crown and Covenant, I guess that makes you the Mandalorian, huh? Oh, dear. Um, no comments. <laughs> All right, well, we'll we'll move on to our uh, first official question here. And this kind of has to do with another one of your works, um, though, as far as I know, I don't think it's published, but you did your uh, doctoral dissertation on Archibald Alexander. Um, So I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about who he is and maybe what are some lessons that uh, we as pastors and even uh, those uh, in our uh, pews can learn from this man? Yeah, and just to uh, clarify, it's Archibald Johnston, uh, okay. Archibald Alexander. A lot of Archibalds in Presbyterian church history, so mm-hmm. you know that you get a freebie on that one. No, thank there. you. You did do well in my history class. <laughs> so I'm not. I'm not questioning your your judgment there. Yeah, Archibald Johnston of Warriston. He's usually nicknamed Warriston for short. Uh, he's one of those lesser known guys from our covenanting past. And, um, you know, I chose him partly because there was very little written about him, and yet he is such a key character in our history. 
This is the guy who wrote most of the polemical documents for the Scottish Covenanters at the time of the Scottish Revolution. So we're talking 1630s and 1640s. Uh, he was one of the five Scottish commissioners at the Westminster Assembly, and yet we don't really know much about him. Uh, he was the, I would say, majority author of the Scottish National Covenant. Um, he also served on the Committee of Both Kingdoms that ran the Civil War for the English Parliament and Scottish Covenanters. So uh, point being, he's this really important guy that you've never heard of. And so it fell to me to try to unpack his life a little bit. Now, the thing this guy, um, I find fascinating about him, he left a, a massive spiritual diary. And spiritual diaries from the 17th century give us a fabulous window into what uh, reform piety looked like in that generation. Uh, of course, this is a subject which has um, had a lot more coverage recently with massive volumes of reprinting of Puritan works, works of 17th century Scottish Presbyterians, for which we're thankful. But it seems to me that when we read their published works, we're only, in a sense, reading one side of the conversation. We're reading uh, pastoral exhortations to personal piety. Uh, we're reading theological um, uh, dissertations and so on. And that's valuable. But what we don't hear is the other side of the conversation. We don't hear uh, how these books were received by their original authors. We don't read very much about their own personal Christian experience. And that's why, as I came to this study, I didn't want it to simply be an academic study. Yes, I, I, I was pursuing a PhD. It was an academic work. But I was particularly interested in uh, the pastoral element here. And because he left such a massive diary, we can really get to understand um, a man's personal struggles, a man, how he grows and matures in the Christian faith, uh, the triumphs he sees in his Christian walk, and also um, the disasters that sometimes happen um, and mistakes and sometimes serious errors um, that even uh, famous forefathers made. Uh, one of my friends, Bill Van Dudeward, um encouraged me when I started uh, reading this man's diary. He said, um, I would advise you to consider how you would pastor this man if he were a member of your congregation. And, and that was really helpful advice. Um, it really stuck with me. And so I spent a lot of my time focusing on this man's uh, Christian walk. And when I did so, I found just so much um, valuable insight into Christian living uh, for, I think, uh, valuable for today's uh, readers as well. Now, before I give you some examples, I should say um, the danger here is that we can set someone like this on a pedestal and kind of make his Christian experience normative, right? And we can say, um, you know, if you don't have this degree of passion for Jesus, or if you uh, haven't had this kind of dark night of the soul, followed by an ecstatic, you know, deliverance, you know, you're less of a Christian mm -hmm. or, or something like that. Obviously, um, one's personal testimony is just that. It's, it's personal. Of course, we should anticipate um, commonalities between uh, Christians and in the Reformed world. Um, we express those, um, those um, aspects of Christian experience using the same vocabulary. But in a very real sense, every Christian's testimony is the same. It's the same testimony to the saving grace of Christ. Um, we may come through very different life experiences, but there, we should be able to find things we can identify with. 
And that's what I found with with Warriston. Um, Warriston, of course, 17th century uh, reform guy, he he divided up the means of grace into those um, Westminster categories of the word, sacraments, and prayer. And I have kind of pursued those three dimensions, um, I think, very helpfully for my own personal life. And I've done some writing on this. Uh, hopefully, will be helpful to others as well. If you take the word, for example, Warriston's life was completely word saturated. This is this is a guy who spent hours every day uh, devouring scripture. He memorized, you know, whole chapters at a time. I, I'm not very good at memorizing <laughs> things that have a good memory. This guy was a lawyer by trade, had a, almost a photographic memory. He would memorize. I think he memorized most of the metrical Psalter, for example. And uh, that's just his personal devotions. The community pursuit of the word was, of course, vital as well. The public use of the word, uh, particularly the preaching of the word. Uh, he kept a very copious sermon notebook. And so it's very interesting to see what uh, what the ministers of the time were preaching and how he personally turned those sermons into application in his own life. Um, so applicability of the word was crucial. It wasn't just head knowledge he was pursuing. It was heart knowledge as well. But there are a couple of things um, that he did, which I would say are not perhaps particularly um, smart or, or um, lessons that we want to apply. Uh, it's easy when we read our uh, stories of the famous people in our past to select the good and forget that there's actually often a lot of bad stuff mixed in it as well. So, for instance, you find um, Warriston doing things like writing himself into the text of Scripture, um, not in some way as if he were a prophet or, or an apostle, but he personalized Scripture. Some of that, I think, is helpful uh, he does this a lot with the Psalms, for example. That's Psalms for you American listeners, but <laughs> Psalms. Uh, he'll he'll take the Psalms of the Bible and he'll write his name into the text. So uh, it would be an exercise that perhaps some of, some of your listeners have, have, have done before. So if you take the 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Um, it would be like you saying the Lord is Aaron's shepherd, Aaron shall not want. He leads Aaron by uh, still waters, he leads Aaron, and and you get the idea. You drop your name in, it, it immediatizes the text, and, and many find this helpful just to remind themselves that this is not some ancient text with no relevance. This is the word, the living Christ speaking to me. Warson does this a lot, but then, then he goes a step further, and he starts um, in an almost prophetic way, writing himself into prophetic texts of Scripture, because he believed that God had set him apart providentially for a very unique role in his generation. He was the lawyer of the covenant. There's no question the Lord used him to write up the national covenant and be very uh, involved in the highest echelons of power. He saw that. And so he begins to write himself into, say, the call of Jeremiah and saying, you know, the Lord has set me apart as a lawyer mm. for him. And, and he he channels the words, the very unique words of a very unique calling of an Old Testament prophet, as if he himself had this unique kind of prophetic anointing. That's going a step too far. And, and I think it's important for us, just as we interpret guys like this from the past, that we we learn not just the good stuff, but we recognize that there can be excesses in our uh, in our application of the word. And there's times where you know hermeneutically he's all over the map. It's kind it's kind of like um, you know I, I had to buy a new car last week, and um, you know if I, if I walked into a, a a lot and I saw 
you know, a twenty thousand dollar car and said, "Wow, you know, she's a beauty. I want it." And inside, I'm saying, "I cannot possibly afford that. That is not good stewardship." So I go home and I open my Bible and I find that verse in the Psalms that says, "The chariots of the Lord are twenty thousand." I don't say it's a word for the <laughs> Lord. This must be God's will. And so I'm now going to buy this $20,000 car, right? Um, you do come across that kind of thing with Warriston, and it's kind of troubling. But it's important for us, again, as modern readers to read these people and see the mistakes they made and learn uh, from those mistakes as well. Mm -hmm. So there's so, so in Psalm 2, would he put uh, kiss the Warriston, his wrath to turn? <laughs> <laughs> that was for his wife. That was different. Oh, okay. All right. Gotcha. That was, that was gotcha. different. Gotcha. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah. So anyway, that that would be an example from the word. Uh, we have to be careful of um, mishandling the word, and um, you know, it, it is it's wonderful to to read. You know, those moments where he sees God's word. The sermon for for a particular uh, Lord's Day was just perfect for his situation. And it's you know, it's exciting to read a man go through the troubles and tribulations in his family. Let's say during the course of the week, he's he's exercised in prayer for his son who su suffered from severe mental illness. Uh, he went through depression, um, suicidal ideation, um, a lot of these kinds of things that I think we're doing a better job um, talking about more openly in the churches than perhaps previous generations did. Warriston just pours all this into his diary, and, and, and it's helpful to see how he got help for these things uh, in his spiritual journey. So you'll follow him through a week of upheaval, and then it comes the Lord's Day, and it's like he writes in his diary, you'll never guess what today's text was and you look at the text and it's like wow it, it was perfect and uh and of course this uh providential timing of the word is something that god's people often experience uh where the lord is kind to just fashion a, a text and you know this is just the next text in the in the series through a book that's being preached but the lord had it perfectly timed for this man and that's the kind of mm -hmm. thing where you realize you know what my christian experience isn't really that far removed from these men uh of old um, a couple another thing I'll just mention um, as well, and, and that is uh, Warson's experience of of the Lord's Supper. Uh, the generation in which he served, uh, I think there was a lot more emphasis upon um, self examination and preparation for the Lord's Supper than perhaps we hear emphasized today. I, I don't want to generalize. Um, but I think that generation, um, they took perhaps a lot more seriously the need to take considerable time to prepare the heart for communion with the Lord. The sacramentology of the Scottish Second Reformation uh, very much followed um, uh, Robert Bruce and his book on the sacrament, which talked about uh, the importance of communing with, with the Lord as a very tangible thing. Uh, Bruce famously wrote that in the sacraments we we get Christ better and not not in a in a different way and there's nothing in in the visible word that we don't receive from the the preached word uh, and yet um, the believer should anticipate um, um, a particular a peculiar communion with Christ um, at the table the Lord has been kind to accommodate our weak faith by giving us tangible elements of bread and wine which obviously we have to be careful not to in any way ascribe some kind of power to the elements themselves. But Warriston in his diary and, and other diarists of the time 
um, speak of remarkable times of drawing close to the Lord at the table, not not because they're you know looking for an experience like some kind of charismatic experience that's going to lift them to a higher plane, but there was an anticipation of meeting with Christ, and one of the ways to ensure uh, a greater possibility of that was in a, in a sense to hoist the sails of your soul to catch the Spirit um, by by in prayer by repentance. And the church of that day, of course, provided for that by having communion seasons where there were preparation services, frequently multiple different pastors who would preach uh, a new series that would be particularly for that season. And the Lord um, met with our forefathers in, in truly dramatic ways um, uh, through that. And uh, that's something you do find in Warson's diary as well. Um, again, I think sometimes there can be a, a, an almost mystical um, attachment to the Lord's Supper in that generation, which I don't think we want to, to replicate. But there was uh, this was something. This was a, a you know a holy day, a high day in the in the church calendar, if we could put it that way. There was also time afterwards to to have a post mortem to examine mm-hmm. how did I meet with the Lord at this uh, sacrament? Again, that's something that I I I, I don't hear very often uh, talked about anyway. But um, but these are the kinds of issues that you encounter um, in uh, in the diary and uh, just the usual run of the mill ups and downs of the Christian life. You know, uh, parenting issues. How do you lead in family worship? Uh, what do you do when you have a kid who's suffering from mental illness? What do you do when you're personally suffering with with grief? Uh, here's a man who lost his first wife after just eight months of marriage and he was thrown into a deep depression. Um, the diary tells us the the books he read that were helpful to him, Puritan treatises on melancholy that were useful, others that were perhaps less useful. Uh, I think Warriston is, uh, he comes across as a very broken man. And there's an authenticity about that that I as an historian don't often see, frankly, in a lot of uh, biographies of these guys. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a real danger that we could whitewash our heroes, that we can set them up as models for ministry that are just so astronomically high that any seminary student is going to say, I will never attain to something like this. And that's why I think it's important that we share both sides. It's, a, it's an integrity issue as an historian that uh, we're not breaking the ninth commandment. Not that we're um, drawing t- all the attention to their sins and failures, but neither are we omitting those. Um, I can certainly identify with the Warriston because I know I'm a broken person, I'm a sinner, and I struggle with the same things he did. And that, I think, is how we're going to learn from these men from the past. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. Joseph? Yeah, so, I mean, that plays into, I mean, and probably uh, what's appetites already for things that people can be learning, and especially uh, young and aspiring pastors can be learning and gleaning from church history. But what what else would you say as far as uh, why else, beyond reasons you just mentioned, why else should every young pastor, an aspiring pastor in particular, but even in general, pastors love and read church history, and what are some of the main pastoral benefits of it for men serving in the ministry? And like I said, you certainly already touched on that somewhat, but w- would you add anything uh, to what you said about Warston and, and the value of church history? Yes, well, well, church history, and I'm, I'm sure your hearers have heard the cliche, history is his story. And, you know, that, that's cliched, but it's actually really good theology. Um, we understand that history 
is the narrative of 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 God's providence in in in, in the affairs of men um, throughout time. Um, the the goal of the church history department, and I'll just I'll just actually read to you. This is what I my kind of um, little motto, if you like. The goal of the church history department at the seminary uh, is to explain, interpret, and apply the narrative of Christ building His global church over the past two millennia, and discerning our own place and role in this ongoing story. So, our understanding of history history is meaningless as Twain, was it said, history is bunk, or no, it was Gerald Ford, I think it was. A lot of people look at history and say, well, yeah, if the only thing we learn from history is that nobody learns from history, and we have these kind of platitudes, but we shouldn't listen to the academy or the secularists' understanding of history. We need to have all of our theology drawn from the Word of God, and so much of the Bible is history, um, and it explains what God is doing. Christ is building his church. Uh, of course, in redemptive history, it's a different, it's an altogether different uh, um, kind of history. It's normative history. It's the history of redemption. It's inspired history. As we see God preparing the world for the arrival of his son as he becomes flesh, and then following Christ's public ministry and his ascension into heaven, and he gives the great commission to the apostles, church history that flows from that then is the narrative account of Christ building his church in time and space. Um, and there's also different ways that we can we can structure that history. Maybe we can talk about that in, in a little bit. But I would say that um, we need to see it as something that is directed by the hand of providence. It is not simply directed by the free decisions of men, although the Lord of history, of course, uses the free decisions of men to accomplish his own purposes. Um, and I think when we understand that as pastors, uh, it helps us pastorally. It helps us to explain to people uh, the sovereignty of God over their personal histories, their family histories, and just the crises that each generation has to live with on a national and an international uh, scale. A lot of people look at the seminary and say, why, why do you even teach church history? Uh, I mean, you guys had to do uh, how to write a church history paper uh, as a presbytery exam. Um, you had to do a, a church, an oral church history, which of course is everybody's favorite exam, right? It's so easy. Um, it's uh, I think the, I think the most challenging in many ways because you could be asked anything mm -hmm. uh, over two thousand years of, of of history. But why do we do that? Why is it so important for pastors? Well, I think we need to see church history as a pastoral discipline. Uh, church history should be not just academics. It shouldn't just be so that you guys can stock your sermons with cute illustrations from the past, you know, tell some covenanter story or one day Luther said this and one day Calvin did that. And people say, oh, pastor, how much knowledge of history you have? Um, I think a lot of people think that's basically what church history is for at, at the seminary. But I would say that church history is a massive storehouse packed with practical theology, as the faith once delivered to the saints is lived out by the saints in a variety of different times and places and cultures, different intellectual contexts. And as seminary students study history, uh, they find that their personal spiritual development is aided uh, as they look to people in the past, like we've just said with Warriston. It's not that any individual should be normative for our Christian experience. Uh, Christ, of course, is our inspired example, but we have the wisdom of the ages uh, distilled in the pages of, of church history. And I think a pastor who possesses a general grasp, at least a general grasp, 
of our former generation's hard-won victories and theological insights and regrettable failures will have a kind of historical ballast uh, that he needs to avoid the chronological snobbery that every generation struggles with. And I'm sure you guys are familiar with that term. C.S. Lewis famously used this term uh, when he dismissively wrote off something as, well, that's medieval, as if, well, our generation, we have arrived, we have all the knowledge, and we kind of neglect uh, in a snobbish way those who went before us, when, of course, the reality is we are standing on the shoulders uh, of giants. And I think it's also important that not just that seminary students um, are learning this for themselves, but they're being given a pastoral tool to bring with them into ministry as well. I think church history in general and Christian biography in particular are among some of the most useful and underappreciated tools uh, that the church possesses to edify uh, God's people. Quite apart from the fact that it's very approachable and, and readable, we all like stories, I hope, and <laughs> we like to turn the page to see what happens next. Um, I find that to be a more compelling um, a genre uh, to read. But quite apart from that, you also gain uh, a contextualized understanding of a lengthy period of church history. When you read a biography, you're not just learning about that guy, you're learning about his life and his times. And of course, there's nothing new under the sun. And we often find that the times in which men lived and women lived in the past, how they as Christians engaged with the particular trials or challenges of those times, that provides us with a wealth of, of help, I think, for struggling Christians who are struggling with their times and uh, the great uncertainties of the generation in which uh, they live. Let me just add one or two more things here. Uh, you guys don't just study uh, church history, but you're also studying historical theology. And it's so important, and we, we all know this, that every generation people come up with quote-unquote new heresies. And, well, if you know church history, you know that there's nothing new about this. It's an old heresy uh, dressed up in a new guise as well. And so you're able to respond. I think you're much more equipped to address uh, emerging uh, heresies, emerging errors, fresh challenges that you or the people in your pews face by knowing who addressed these things in the past and being able to learn from their uh, understandings as well. And quite apart from that, there is a history of biblical interpretation. As you guys go to the study and you, you prepare your sermons, you use, I trust, the, the, you know, the best of the, of the modern commentaries, but I also trust you use the best of the historical commentaries. And there is a history of interpretation. And there are sometimes reasons why certain interpreters, say Calvin and Luther in the, in the first generation of Reformation, why they would have interpreted text a certain way. Uh, there may be reasons why, well, let's quote Archibald Alexander, the other Archibald you mentioned earlier. Why did the old Princetonians maybe interpret that a, a different way? Uh, when you understand the context in which these men lived in history, it helps you sift through those historical uh, commentaries and know what's uh, worth retaining and what perhaps is worth uh, leaving alone. So that's that's a handful of things, but um, church history is so, so valuable. And for you to be able to bequeath that to your congregations is such a blessing. Um, I, I Well, you guys know this because you had me in class recently, but I, I really encourage pastors to try to develop their own church history curriculum uh, for, say, an adult Sabbath school class or a high school Sabbath school class. 
because our people need to know uh, where they fit in the story. They need to know they're people of a story and it helps them situate themselves as part of a much greater drama. Yeah, no, that's good. It, uh, just hearing you talk about that kind of like whetted my appetite, made me miss uh, sitting in your classes and made me want to uh, like audit them again without the pressure of the uh, <laughs> the midterm papers and all <laughs> the exams and Presbytery and all of that, which is was uh, good for us. But uh, w- would like to go back and watch those again and just enjoy them. Do you, does this may be something for our listeners? Does seminary still offer like that really good deal on auditing? Well, I'm not sure what the which really good deal. I, I, my understanding at the moment is I think it's like ninety nine dollars yeah, to of the class, and that's you're getting thirty hours of lecture there for yeah. ninety nine bucks, and that's a, that's a good deal. In fact, uh, some congregations have set aside a Friday night sort of fellowship time, get together for a meal, and then they sit down and they watch they they watch church history class or something, and then they have conversation afterwards. And uh, I know that's been that's been beneficial uh, to congregations, but of course you can do it uh, yourself as well. Um, I I personally think that it's best to learn in in community. I think it's really important mm-hmm. for you to be able to have uh, conversations with uh, the folks who have just watched the same material. And um, yeah, so I I strongly encourage that. And uh, yeah, rpts.edu. Um, have a look and see what the current rates are. Sure. No, that's great. That's great. Yeah. Before we uh, go to the next question, you were mentioning, um, you know, biographies or even autobiographies. Do you have a particular favorite um, biography that that you like? Oh my, I have a hundred favorite biographies, Aaron. Um, <laughs> I, 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 it, you know, the, the, I, I get asked this question a lot, and I, I find the answer always changes. It it's often depends on what I'm reading. Mm-hmm. Um, as I look back um, on biographies, I have really appreciated and gone back to again and again. Um, I, I, I've always found a gr- I've always appreciated the biographical works of Ian Murray. Uh, Ian Murray, I just the, the Lord is. I think just really used him to open up our reform past in in really helpful ways, particularly his application to the needs of the church today. It's not because I I agree with Ian on everything because I, I I really don't. Um, I, I think um, uh, sometimes I think he's a little too generous with some people than perhaps I would be, mm-hmm. but perhaps it's a helpful balance to me. Uh, sometimes it's good for people. For example, he wrote a biography of of John Wesley some years ago. Um, which I found very enlightening, very helpful. Um, he got a bit of flack, uh, I think, from the Presbyterian wing of the Reformed uh, family, saying, you know what, this guy is borderline heresy in some things. Why would you write an appreciation of him? Um, but if you read the book yourself, you'll find he's deeply critical of the theological errors that Wesley wrote. But I think it's a valuable exercise nonetheless um, to understand um, some of these important people who have left a massive mark in history. So um, in terms of Ian Murray's biographies, uh, his his two volumes um, on Martin Lloyd-Jones are classics. Um, again, some would dismiss it as a hagiography, but it's an incredibly well-researched and well-written work on a very important Christian leader of the last century. Um, his biography of uh, Jonathan Edwards is also, I think, very helpful. Um, I, I also would encourage uh, you to consider, again, these are large biographies, but Arnold Dalimore's biography of George Whitfield in two volumes is um, just, a, I didn't want it to stop. It's two huge volumes. And I, I couldn't put it down. Uh, I think Martin Lloyd-Jones once, um, I think it was an offhand remark, but I've, I've heard it cited many places. Uh, he once said that when he's discouraged in ministry, he pays a visit to the 18th century. 
And so he would often go back and read the biographies of the great uh, revival preachers of the 18th century and uh, just remind himself of what the Lord is able to do through the ordinary means of grace. And so um, I've found a lot of benefit in reading um, uh, from that era as well. Ecclesiologically, I find myself miles away from a lot of those guys. Mm But um, I find that we have exactly the same understanding of the ordinary means of grace and our dependence on the Spirit to bless them. Uh, I'd recommend highly uh, J.C. Ryle's um, uh, historical works. Uh, I particularly find benefit in his book, uh, Christian Leaders of the 18th Century. It's not a very catchy title. That book had a very profound influence on me when I was uh, an undergrad in college. Um, Got me excited about preaching made me think very seriously about the pastoral ministry most of these guys were anglicans again i i i had strong disagreements with them uh, but again i think we need to read read broadly um in those things so i recommend those and in, in our i suppose i should balance that by saying um there are some great quote unquote presbyterian biographies as well uh, there are some very helpful biographies of the old uh, princeton guys uh, i'd recommend and for our covenanting forefathers there's a lot of hagiography we have to kind of sift through. Um, but if you want some really good, serious, um, fairly scholarly, but very accessible biographies, I recommend the three biographies by Morris Grant on the Covenanters, Richard Cameron, Donald Cargill, and James Rennick. And those are very important um, forefathers to the Reformed Presbyterian tradition. And um, Morris is very balanced, I think. He isn't afraid to point out things that they did that were maybe not worthy of emulation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But um, I recommend those three as well. I better stop there because I, sure. I think it's a, a long, long list. <laughs> well, thank you for that. I think that will uh, keep most of us busy for the next four or five years if we uh, <laughs> were to read every single one of them. Uh, but we'll transition a little bit. I mean, we, we'll stay on the theme of uh, church history in some respect and now focus kind of on our own denominational history. Um, back in the 80s, I believe, we had a uh, testimony put together that was uh, put alongside the uh, uh, Confession of Faith, Westminster Confession of Faith. So a uh, question for you is, what is the testimony? What's its purpose? Um, why is it valuable? And how does it work alongside the confession and catechisms? Right. That's, that's a great question. A lot of people, when they first um, come to an RP church, they're maybe considering membership and, you know, perhaps they get hold of the, the blue book, as we call it, um, which has our, our, our documents in it. And uh, yeah, this is a question you often will get. What What's this testimony thing? You know, it's like, I, I've, you know, I've heard of the Apostles' Creed. I've heard of the Westminster Confession. But what is this strange thing in a parallel column uh, called the RP testimony? Um Perhaps it would be helpful to begin by by pointing out that there are there are differences between creeds and confessions mm-hmm. and, and testimonies. Okay, so um, we we share what we often call the Catholic creeds, uh, the small c, uh, with with all uh, branches of of Christianity, um, apostate and faithful. So we hold to the uh, Apostles' Creed, uh, the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedonian Definition, these kinds of documents from the early church. And of course, these creeds um, set us apart from other religions. Uh, these declare that we are Christians, okay? We, we belong to Christianity as a world religion, if you want to put it like that. Um, Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox um, hold to the, the Apostles' Creed as well. Of course, there's a whole galaxy of 
errors that have uh, that 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 uh, we don't agree with them on. But this much at least sets us apart as Christian. Then we have confessions of faith, and uh, we subscribe, as you know, to the Westminster Confession, and this is what distinguishes us as uh, Reformed and Presbyterian, as opposed to non-reformed and non-presbyterian churches so um i think uh, the way um i find it helpfully put that's actually by david weir who um, was recently on the seminary board he's an elder out at ridgefield park and he has a very helpful little sentence in one of his books uh, he says in the history of christianity confessions of faith expound the doctrinal commitments of a particular branch of the church a confession of faith differentiates one branch of christianity from another a creed, on the other hand, differentiates the tree, Christianity, mm-hmm. from mm-hmm. other trees, religions other than Christianity. So um, we have a creed, and we need to not be ashamed to say we hold to the Apostles' Creed. We are Nicene men, okay? We, we, we hold to these things. We are Christian. But we are also confessional, and we are uh, those who subscribe to the Westminster Confession, which distinguishes us from the Baptists, from the Independents, and, and, and others as well. So then what is a a testimony then? Well, the testimony is what distinguishes the RPCNA from other Presbyterian and Reformed churches. Okay, so we're on the same branch. I don't know to push the analogy. We're a different twig. I don't know. know. (laughs) But but a testimony uh, is what makes us uh, what we are as Reformed Presbyterians. Or if I could use the older term that was uh, used to be more fashionable, we are we are covenanters, right? We we come from that um, second Scottish Reformation um, uh, history, and our roots lie there. We proclaim the mediatorial kingship of Christ over the church and uh, the civil magistrate as well. And uh, we have to understand that because we have those Scottish roots, when we were transplanted from uh, the old world to the new world with all of its experiments in um, in democracy and so forth, uh, we had to somehow try to, um, I guess, translate those distinctive principles into this new American uh, context. And that's where the testimony um, that we have began to uh, develop. Some Presbyterian branches of the church, when they came to this side of the pond, um, they had the Westminster Confession of Faith, but they realized that some of the details, particularly on the civil magistrate, they realized seemed somewhat obsolete in this new uh, democracy, okay? So, you know, we don't have a parliament, we don't have a monarchy anymore, you know, we, we, we got rid of all that stuff, right, when we, when we rebelled. So what most Presbyterian churches did, they actually edited this historic confession of faith. They, they'd simply, you know, deleted chapters and rewrote them, or they edited paragraphs uh, from the 1646-1647 um, confession to reflect the new American situation. And we're one of the few branches that didn't do that. We said, no, this is our historic confession. Um, we understand that there are some things that perhaps we see differently now, but we're going to leave this historic document alone in its original integrity. And that's why we have that in the left-hand column in our blue book. We retain the historic te- uh, the historic confession. The right-hand column, however, uh, contains our testimony. And in that testimony, there are a few places where we uh, take some exceptions uh, to the original confession of faith, given uh, the new situation that we find ourselves in. And, uh, you know, the, the, the forces of democratization in America 
uh, have affected all branches of the church pretty much, including um, uh, ourselves. Uh, so, for instance, um, historically, our denomination has moved from a position of complete political dissent to what we might call a, a, a cautious, principled uh, political engagement. And you can ask some other guests someday about that if you like. <laughs> um, not going to walk into that mind today. Um, but our testimony addresses these things, you see. And um, I think testimony bearing is really important because it acknowledges that every branch of the Church of Christ uh, finds itself in different you know, socio-political contexts, and we need to be able to take the doctrines of our confession and apply them to the unique challenges of the generation in which we live. So this is what distinguishes a testimony from a confession, and um, the testimony is really more of a polemical and controversial document that itemizes the ways that we as a denomination stand distinctive even from our closest ecclesiastical allies and friends, you know, within NAPARC, uh, for example. Now, um, I think that's just really, really helpful. Um, I'm sure um, we have many friends in NAPARC. They would look at our testimony and say, I love what you've done here. I agree with the vast majority of what you've said here. You've got this quirky thing about singing psalms exclusively a cappella. Don't like that. You've got another quirky thing over here saying that um, the nation must bow the knee to Jesus Christ as mediator. Don't think I agree with that one. But most of this we, we agree with. So the testimony is not simply an exercise in being sort of grumpy old Scotsmen, you know, who are picking theological fights. It's nailing our colors to the mast on certain principles, um, certain challenges our, our, our country is facing. Um, you know, the, the great sin of abortion, for example, um, some of the, the progressive LGBT um, um, uh, agenda that we're seeing increasingly, uh, volumes rising all the time in that. We have statements in our testimony that address those issues very directly and very pointedly in a way that the Westminster Confession of Faith did not. And I'm not faulting our Westminster divines. That wasn't, that wasn't on their agenda from the parliament. But we need to have a public testimony to the world on a whole host of different things. And the Westminster Confession is simply inadequate because of its historical context uh, to address with that degree of specificity. I do believe certainly that, you know, the larger catechism of the seventh commandment has plenty of stuff that will help us address, say, the LGBT issue. But I'm talking about a contemporary document uh, that will address those things uh, very clearly. I have a quote here, actually, I, I dug out on this um, from, this is from the Scottish RP Church, actually, um, a 19th century testimony. And I think it's a helpful little statement. It's a, it's a little long, but I, I think you'll follow. Mm -hmm. It says, in the public formularies of the churches, it is not unusual to find a confession and a testimony substantially united, but each has its peculiar province. Both of them defend and exhibit divine truth, but the testimony contemplates the truth as having encountered and as being still exposed to opposition. In the confession, the truths of religion are plainly written as on a tablet erected in a public place that all may peruse them. In the testimony, truth is written as on a banner which conveys the idea of moral warfare, of assault and defense. Nor has the testimony to deal with the truth only in the way of distinctly confessing and fearlessly defending it. 
It is also its province to unmask and condemn error. It carries on an offensive as well as a defensive warfare. So, so what, what the Scottish Church is, is, is showing there is that what we have in the testimony is a document that can be added to, can, can um, respond to the challenges of the times in a very flexible way. Uh, even in the couple of years you guys have been um, in the Synod, you've seen this. We've had letters written, we've had um, uh, papers written saying we need to update or to clarify a statement in our testimony to respond to contemporary challenges. And in that sense, the testimony is a much more flexible document. Mm-hmm. Um, we're adding to it as new challenges arise. And again, it nails our colors to the mask in a very, mask in a very, uh, a very clear way. So um, I don't know if that answers everything you want to. We, we could, we again could talk longer on that, on that issue, but uh, testimonies have great value to us. And I think we need to remember that they set us apart, particularly as Reformed Presbyterians, as covenanters, and um, all of that means. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're uh, going through the uh, confession and testimony in our adult Sunday school class. Um, so it's been really fun to be able to do that. And in some ways, it's kind of serving as like a, a new members class as well, <laughs> um, yeah. where people are getting, e- even those who have been a part of the church for um, really since its inception uh, back in 2014, um, are still kind of learning things um, about our denomination, about the uh, um, church at large. So I really appreciate it. And uh, again, I mean, I know Joseph plugged this uh, idea of auditing a church history class, but um, you also taught a uh, class on the uh, RP testimony um, that I think people can audit as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe wait a few years because I think that was recorded and I was in that class asking a bunch of dumb questions. So maybe wait till uh, <laughs> it's recorded again, but uh, you can find that uh, on uh, the, the RP Seminary's website as well. Uh, Joe, you have any, any follow-up on the testimony? No, no, that was, I think he touched exactly on on what we were hoping for. Um, so kind of transitioning now to like our, our kind of perennial question that we ask everyone. And I remember in your class, I think it was readiness for pastoral ministry. You you make this distinction between a theology of ministry and a philosophy of ministry, and so we we just like asking guys what it, what is your own, and so we'll ask you what what is your philosophy of preaching? Kind of how do you preach, and and why do you preach the way that you do? And then can just run with that a little bit into just kind of what a basic sermon preparation would look like and and what you take into the pulpit and do do with all of that as you will sure well again yeah i, I do distinguish between theology and, and philosophy but the two are inseparable so i I'll start briefly with theology and we'll go to philosophy. I, I think, again, because we are confessional, uh, because we have a confession of faith that we subscribe to, that we have taken vows to uphold, um, I take very seriously uh, the injunction of the catechism when it says that God makes the the, the reading, but especially the mm-hmm. preaching of the word, an effectual means of convincing, converting sinners, uh, and so on. So um, in, in our Reformed understanding of the Scriptures, uh, preaching um, has primacy among the ordinary means of grace. It's still an ordinary thing. Uh, you know, God, God takes an ordinary guy like you and me, um, and of course we are trained and, and, and we're blessed by the Spirit with particular gifts to, uh, to translate and interpret and apply the scriptures and so on. But it's a very ordinary thing. It, it's kind of, it's crazy to most people. They walk in and they say, so let me get this right. 
you're there for like what maybe an hour to an hour and a half on Sunday morning and this guy gets up reads from this old book and then tells you what it means and makes some application and that's it that that's all you got you know you you, you hear the echo of that in the apostle Paul when he says he talks about the foolishness of preaching but it's by the foolishness of preaching that God is pleased to save and um and and that's our, our theology um you know what you win people um by you win them too we we don't uh, we feed the sheep. We don't entertain the goats, I think C.H. Spurgeon once said. And uh, so many people today in the churches are, you know, understandably appalled at how the churches are just bleeding people. How do we keep people? How do we keep the young people? We need something more than just preaching. Well, we, we cannot compromise um, on what the scriptures have taught. And what our confession teaches, um, we need more of the spirit in our preaching, um, but we don't need less preaching. So that so that's crucial. So our, our theology of preaching should inform our philosophy of preaching. And the philosophy side of it, of course, is we might say as different as every man. The Lord has given men particular strengths within the domain of preaching, I think. Um, some more than others. I, I have dear brothers in Christ, and you know, I'm I'm I <laughs> careful how to say this. I, I'm I'm envious of the, the manner in which they are able to memorize chunks of scripture, chunks of their sermon that, you know, they'll carry, you know, a scrap of paper into the pulpit and off they go. Not because, you know, they started preparing that morning. They've been laboring hard in the, in the, in the office all week and up they get, and the Lord blesses that. Um, I was not endowed with those particular preparation and so on may, may be very different. Prayer, before we labor in preaching, activity. Um, preaching, the scriptures teach us, is a gift of the Holy Spirit. There is something supernatural about preaching, not because there's something supernatural about Aaron Murray, because there certainly is not, okay? But Aaron Murray is a very ordinary man using a very ordinary means of grace, but blessed by an extraordinary power from the Holy Spirit. And so the Apostle Peter gets up on the day of Pentecost, and he gets up and he expounds the Scripture, and the thousands of people are converted. Um, it's it's the work of the Spirit. So if I am going to start off on Monday morning getting ready for the Lord's Day, the first thing I need to do is hit my knees on the floor and, and say, Lord, I, I am, I'm unequal to this task. And unless your Holy Spirit opens to me the Word and, and, and helps me understand it and helps me apply it to my flock, I'm wasting my time. You know, if I say to myself, um, I'm not feeling particularly close with the Lord. Maybe I'm going through a season of dryness. It could be tempting for me to say, well, look, I better just, maybe I should just prime the pump by getting a couple hours of study in first, right? That'll, that'll get me in the mood, and then I'll go to the Lord in prayer. I, I, I'm trusting in myself at that, at that point. One, one of the texts of Scripture I have found so helpful, and I come back to this again and again and again, is uh, the power, is the um, the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. Um, this has been such a blessing to me in ministry. And of course, we know that that um, miracle is in a sense a visual parable. You've got the repetition of the, the wilderness experience. Here are the people, they're all sitting in groups, okay, in companies like they did um, on the plains of Moab, okay? Um, and, you know, how are they going to be fed? There's not enough food for them all. The Lord is going to miraculously provide for them. And uh, I love what Jesus does. He comes to the disciples, and the disciples are saying, these people are going to starve. We need to do something. Send them home. Jesus says, you give them something to eat. And every Monday morning when I'm going into my office, it, you know, I need to hear Jesus say to me, you give them something to eat. We have been ordained to feed Christ's sheep, to feed the lambs. 
And like the disciples, we need to say, Lord, I have these five loaves and two fish, but what are these among so many? And we have to begin with humility and prayer. We need to come to Christ and say, Lord, here I am again. And I have these five loaves and these two fish. And, you know, the bread's kind of crumbly and moldy, right? And the fish have been, haven't been in the fridge. And it's and the point is, I am I have to be made aware of my utter inadequacy. I mean, it's it's laughable that the Lord could take what I'm about to do and convert a soul with that because preaching is a converting ordinance mm-hmm. and that the Lord could take this and, and sanctify, feed his sheep and build them up. So I have to bring the five loaves and two fishes to the Lord. And I love, and I think it's Matthew's account of that. Um, the way Matthew writes this, it says he took them and blessed them and gave them back to the disciples and the disciples gave to the people. And the order is really significant. You give them something to eat, expression of inadequacy. Bring them here to me, actually, Jesus says. Bring them here to me. So you give your inadequacy to the Lord, and he blesses them, and then he gives them back to you. You still have to preach the sermon. You still have to feed the sheep. But the Lord takes your your meager gifts, and he transforms them, and he blesses them to feed his sheep truly. And, and, and you know, there's basketfuls left over. And in my experience, oftentimes, you know, it, it's those weeks where I just, you know, there's times when you write a sermon and it's like the words just leap off the page mm-hmm. and you can't get them down fast enough. And the Lord really opens your word in a very powerful way. There's then there's those, those other weeks <laughs> where it's like mixing concrete. It's just, oh, this is not coming together for me. I, I, mean, I think I know what the text is saying. I can think of a few maybe helpful illustrations, but I, I this just, and you climb up into the pulpit and you're just conscious, five loaves, two fish, five loaves, two fish. This is really weak. And and then you preach and it's like, well, not that you should be thinking about your performance, if I can use that word. You shouldn't be thinking of that, but you come down out of it. That's the sermon often. The Lord, mm-hmm. You'll get someone come up to you in tears afterwards and say, you have no idea how the Lord spoke to me this morning from that. And you're like, are you sure? My <laughs> my fish? Um, but but it's it's when we're we're weakest that we we often find the Lord gives us gives us a particular strength and it's of course because we need to have that audience of one. It's He's the one that gets the praise. He's the one that gets the glory. And you say, lady, <laughs> I'm so glad you were blessed from that. Praise the Lord, and that's all we need to say. Praise the Lord. Give the Lord the praise for that. It's His word. I was just the message boy. And um, all praise goes to him for taking that and blessing it. Is that no, what you say when you're uh, standing in the back after you preach? Lady, good. <laughs> uh, no, I, I don't. I probably don't sound that way. But but I have to have that transaction mm-hmm. because the, the great bane of our existence as preachers is, is the great wickedness of pride, mm-hmm. spiritual pride. Um, I'm not up there preaching because I'm I'm kind of a big deal. Because I'm a nobody, Christ is a big deal, and my job is to make him a big deal, to 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 exalt Christ uh, before these people. That has to be the goal of preaching. Christ may be exalted in the conversion of a soul through this sermon. He may be exalted by the conviction of sin that he brings to someone of his saints. He may be he may be exalted in bringing condemnation upon somebody and, and increasing their judgment. Uh, and again, it's a, it's a, it's a terrifying responsibility on 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 the one hand that men will have to give an account for for you know he who knew his master's will and did things worthy of condemnation will be beaten with with many stripes. And um, every time I preach, especially when when I, I'm I'm you know I'm offering Christ to people, 
And I'm conscious that, you know, Christ has been offered and somebody may walk away from here and reject this gospel and this will increase their condemnation. And, and so how can I not climb the steps into the pulpit without a sense of, of, of awe uh, at, at what is taking place in this transaction? So, um, so, so all of those dynamics are, go, are going on, but I still have to do the grunt work in, in, in the, in the, uh, in the, in the office as well. And so, um, I think you'd asked about about that. I mean, I mean again, there's, I, there's no particular um, sort of magic formula here, but um, I tend to preach uh, Lectio Continua. I tend to preach through books of the Bible consecutively. Um, I, I don't have as much of an opportunity to do that anymore because I'm, I'm a full-time professor at the seminary, so I'm often preaching here or there, different places, single sermons. But uh, when I was a full-time pastor, this was my normal procedure. I would sometimes take a break to uh, to do a topical series. If there was something I felt um, was, was a viable uh, was need there, I would do that. Occasionally, I would preach a different series. Uh, I would usually preach a different series for communions, actually. Um, and uh, that was that was valuable, I think, as well. Occasionally, the synod would call for a day of prayer and fasting on some subjects. So I would I would take a, a week off and I would address that subject from the pulpit. I think it's also important to have um, uh, I use the word carefully, but the, the preacher is to have a prophetic voice in in the world if there is some particular crisis comes up. Um, I, I remember as a child. Um, my pastor was Ted Donnelly, and I was I was so spoiled with some of the most amazing preaching. Um, I, I realize that now. I just thought this is what preaching is, is what you do. <laughs> and uh, I remember waking up on Sunday morning. I don't know what age I was, maybe nine or ten. And uh, the news was that Princess Diana had been killed. And, you know, this is sort of, you know, those of you who like British royal history and you know, know about this. But I remember that morning going to church that Sunday morning. And Ted Donnelly preached a sermon, not on the fly. I'm, I'm sure he was probably using an older sermon, but he preached the sermon of the parable of the rich fool. And he applied it to Princess Diana. And it was it was electric. It was, it, I, I still remember that sermon as a child. Here's a man who was preaching consecutively through a book. There was this big, huge national issue crisis. And this may not mean much to Americans. It was it was a big deal for a, for a member of the royal family. To suddenly be tragically be killed was it was it was big news for us. I mean, I guess it would be like someone in the White House, you know, uh, assassinated or something. Mm -hmm. Everybody shocked. September eleventh. There, there are there are crisis moments. Um, you know, COVID. I mean, we, we we've we've lived through crises. I think it's absolutely appropriate and important for the preacher to to address those things. And so um, so I did that as well. So anyway. Um, back to the back to the, the desk. I, I translate the text from the Hebrew or the Greek. Um, there have been times where I have just been so incredibly busy that I don't have the luxury that I would like to translate the whole passage, especially if I'm preaching, say, a whole chapter of Old Testament narrative. That's going to take me half the week because I'm not very good at Hebrew. Um, and I often find that I would look for key words, key phrases, and I would translate those. Um, or um, there have been occasions where I would simply depend upon the translators of our English text, and um, that sometimes happens as well. So you do the translation work, um, then of course you want to distill that into um, um, a clear understanding of the main point of the text. Some people like to call it a homiletical point, um, that's fine, um, but I think you want to make sure that it's the text that is directing the structure of your sermon. And uh, we're preaching the text and not some something that I've kind of distilled from it that I think is kind of important. 
Um, I generally um, preach um, usually three, four points, sometimes two points. Um, I know some people don't like that. That's just the way um, I do that. I don't think that's a, a philosophically a problem if you do it a different way. But generally speaking, I think you can carry more freight in your sermon if you have a clear skeletal structure. That's been my experience anyway. Um, sermons that have less of a structure, in my experience, tend to walk through the text a little more. Um, but it's hard. I find it hard, at least as a listener, to to to, to remember things uh, from that. I don't think you have to have a Presbyterian three-point sermon where everything is alliterated, but that's uh, that's. Uh, that's an option, I, I think. So um, the last thing I would just say is that preaching is not a commentary. It's, it's a sermon. Mm-hmm. And uh, unfortunately, I think a lot of people imagine that, well, if I've got a bunch of commentaries and I rightly interpret the text and I tell people what that says, I'm done. No, you preach to the conscience. You preach to the heart. You preach for changed lives. You preach for the conversion of the lost and the sanctification of the found. Um, you preach to the needs of the people in the pews. It's crucial as a pastor, that you know the flock by visitation, by fellowship, you know what their burdens are, you know where you need to tread delicately, you know where you need to be firm. Um, But it's the shepherd that feeds the flock assigned to him. And if you don't know the flock, you cannot craft your sermons uh, for the needs of that flock. So pastoring, uh, shepherding work, and preaching work go hand in hand. And where those things become separated, then we get into all kinds of of trouble. Mm Mm-hmm. When it uh, just real quick before we go to the next question, um, what do you take up to the pulpit with you? I mean, I hope your Bible, of course, but uh, <laughs> are, you, are you a notes, manuscript, bullet point kind of guy? Yeah. So, yes, I, I bring my Bible, uh, obviously. And um, I also bring with me, I, I generally have a, I guess we all get into habits um, in our first year of preaching, but I, I, I went from a fairly short manuscript to a fuller manuscript. Um, I think a number of reasons for that. I just think, you know, you need to know yourself and know your strengths and your weaknesses. And I, I don't mind saying that one of my weaknesses, I just, I'm not blessed with a very good memory. I I, I lose my train of thought. I, I find that if I don't have a full manuscript, you don't want me to start blabbing um, because I don't know what's going to come out. And so it just helps me if I get lost, I, I've got it in front of me. Um, it's generally bullet points. Um, I occasionally, I usually have full sentences written out where there's perhaps a point that needs to be said just right. Mm-hmm. Obviously, quotations, if I'm using a quotation from a commentator, um, illustrations often will be a little more light. I'll just put in a, a word there that says, this is where you're going to tell that story or something like that. Um, another thing I do that I find helpful is um, I color code my manuscripts. And um, so, for example, when I have the text of scripture, I, I have that in red. If I have an illustration, I make that blue. If I have a quotation from somebody, that's green. And if I have translation, um, like the Hebrew here means this or something, I make that and I think it's purple. And um, now some people will say that's, wow, that's very formulaic. I'm a very visual person. I'm from Mm -hmm. a family of artists. It's the way my brain works. And again, it means that as I'm preaching from a fuller manuscript, I find myself a lot less bound to the manuscript. I have have a lot less need for eye contact on the manuscript. I can keep eye contact on the congregation because when I glance down, I pick up the color. I know where I'm at on the page. Uh, Otherwise, otherwise you get lost on the page. Mm Really interesting. When I became associate pastor to Gordon Ketty, and I remember the first week on the job, and we were just comparing notes about preaching, he did exactly the same thing as me, and he used the same colors. Mm. 
for the same thing. It was the most bizarre providence. It was just really <laughs> unusual. Uh, I didn't know that, mm-hmm. but I know. So I know others uh, have found that helpful, and um, I, I tend to actually put the text in the manuscript as well, mm-hmm. because as you know, when we preach, we often are referring to other scriptures, and I don't want to be one of those preachers that's like now, now turn with me to Jeremiah eighteen. Now turn with me over to First Peter. Now turn with me over to, and it can it can interrupt the flow mm. and and break the communication. And so I try to, as far as possible, read the text from my manuscript, and I find that keeps things moving um, as well. Yeah, one of the things I picked up from you, kind of in your manuscript, is you'll put OPT on some of the bullet points that you've got, which you know stands for optional. Um, and so I found that really helpful. If my manuscript seems a little bit bloated, I'm like, well, I can I can always cut this out. It's not uh, imperative to the rest of the sermon. Um, that's something I picked up from you. Yeah, go ahead. I think those of us who are, well, I'm, I'm Scots Irish. So I, you know, I have the gift of the gab, maybe at this point, maybe an hour into the podcast, you're wishing mm-hmm. I had a few OPTs on uh, my notes here. I'm just, uh, I'm just, you know, shooting from the hip here a little bit, but it is really valuable. If you're somebody who preaches very long to have those, to have some mechanism, just to remind you, uh, I mean, I don't want to be one of these guys that always has his hands on the clock. I mean, I, Remember, my dad used to preach at a vacant congregation. I'll not say which country it was in or where it was, but um, he was often called upon to preach there. And and my dad would preach fairly long sermons. He would preach 45 minutes, 50 minutes sometimes. Um, and uh, he started to get complaints from a certain uh, lady in the church. And uh, the interim moderator called my dad one time and said, um, you know, thank, I just want to say thank you for coming. I mean, you know, we love having you preach. And but, um, you know, if you, if, a, if you could just maybe maybe, you know, keep things, you know, a little shorter. Um, and my dad, you know, oh, I'm sorry, it's been a problem. And it, it became clear there was this one lady who was upset. Most people didn't care. Um, and, and dad said, to, said, well, what do I do if the Holy Spirit takes hold of me? You know, um, <laughs> and, and he was genuine. He wasn't mm-hmm. he wasn't sort of. You know, taking the Mickey, as we say back home. Um, I mean, it was Jim. What What do you do if? I'm sure there have been occasions where the Spirit blesses your preaching with a particular unction. Time stands still. I I I remember mm-hmm. hearing Al Martin preach once at our church, and he preached for nearly two hours. Whoa! And at the end of the sermon, I remember looking at my friend, and we were just like, "Whoa!" And we looked at the clock and we were like we had no idea we had no idea at the time we, we were so carried up into heaven you know the, the preacher showed us the glory of christ we were you know enraptured by him we weren't we were no longer you know we you know whether we were in, on, on earth or in heaven now that's not necessarily common but um it can happen and i think there are times when um the lord just gives you a particular urgency um in your preaching in that preaching moment where things need to be said, and um, and you can detect, you can tell the dynamic between the preacher and the congregation. There's a particular earnestness in the hearing. People are leaning in. Um, you're beginning to to notice the emotions of the people. Nobody's looking at the clock anymore. Christ is in this place, and and that can happen. And um, it's wonderful when it happens. Um, it doesn't always happen. But um, that's where I think we want to. I'd be, I'm always careful not to straightjacket a man and say you must preach with you know. Com- if you don't finish this ser- service within the hour, 
we're walking out of here. Well, that obviously says something about the attitude of of, of, of the hearers as well. Mm-hmm. And I think you do need to be careful, sensitive to the elderly, sensitive to uh, parents of young children. Um, there are all kinds of dynamics there that you do need to be sensitive to. It isn't um, necessarily pastoral kindness to a congregation to inflict upon them a one-hour, ten-minute sermon every Lord's Day and say, this is preaching and you need to sit and listen. You hear that, Joseph? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, but I, I, listen again. There, there are preachers I would gladly mm-hmm. listen to for an hour, and ten minutes. Mm-hmm. I listen to for two hours. Mm-hmm. Bring it on. Um, I, I don't know many. <laughs> I know some. Um, so I guess what I'm trying to do is 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 is, is shoot for a, ba- a balance here. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, I think sometimes we can say, well, I'm a reformed confessional guy. I have a high view of preaching, and that means you need to sit still while I say everything I've prepared for the, for the next hour and a half. And that can be an attitude that perhaps ruling elders need to put their arm around the young pastor and say, let's talk, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. Well, I mean, speaking of time, I want to be respectful of yours. We have uh, one more kind of bonus question. Let me just ask you, do you have time to answer this or should we just move right to the mystery question? No, I, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to talk. You know me. All right. So, yeah. Well, um, we're, we're, I don't want, I don't want to weary your listeners and you can edit this as well. Which is ah, wonderful. People can put it on two times speed if they want to. That's All right. True. So uh bonus question here. Could you share with uh, our listeners, your prophetic paradigm that you use uh, to teach uh, church history? I think both Joe and I have found this very helpful. And I've actually um, even used this paradigm. We're preaching through acts here in Marion. And uh, I found that paradigm actually to be very helpful um, even in the preaching of the book of Acts. So could you kind of explain what that paradigm is and uh, where you see it uh, both in scripture and played out in church history? Yeah, so th- there, are, there are different ways in which you can teach church history. And when I began uh, teaching here, I was just, I was really struggling to find, is there um, a way in which I can teach the kind of the, the meta-narrative of history? So history is is his story. Christ is accomplishing his purposes. What are those purposes? Where do I find those purposes? And of course, I find them in in, in the Word of God. So the Scriptures, um, I believe, give us um, uh, paradigms to help us interpret uh, history. We need to understand that the Scriptures themselves are, of course, a revealed history, redemptive history, and the Scriptures interpret themselves. So it's quite easy when it comes to the biblical normative history. But what about uh, church history? What about everything from the resurrection of Christ um, to to the present? That gets uh, more challenging. We, we're now in the in the realm of historiography. Uh, historiography is to history what hermeneutics is to scripture. How do we interpret this? Um, we could any one of us could you know read a biography, read about a, a history of a war or something, and then draw some sort of pithy applications for today. You know, you know, don't start a land war in Asia. Um, uh, there's your princess bride quote mm-hmm. for, the, for the podcast. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, but I think we can do much better than that as Christians. And the scriptures tell us that there are certain things um, in the prophetic scriptures that uh, we should be looking for uh, in the unfolding of church history. Um, the first prophetic paradigm, I, I call it church organization and expansion. We should expect the church to not only um, develop in its organization and its ecclesiology and its structure, um, we should also expect it to expand uh, around the globe. Jesus said, I will build my church, Matthew 16, verse 18. And so um, we need to understand the church that Christ is building in this period, Anno Domini, uh, is both an organism and an organization. 
So the the organizational aspect of the church is that church organization. Okay, it's it's a um, it's a visible church. It is a church with with courts and with officers and structures and and so on and so forth. And as I teach through church history, we see in this progression of historical theology as the church continues to to grow in its understanding of scripture and subservience and obedience to scripture as it responds to uh, to challenges from false teachers and so on. We see the church going from the primitive church in the first centuries. We see the development of a hierarchical episcopacy, for example, and that's a, that's a, that's a wrong turn. We see the Reformation coming and restoring the primitive um, Presbyterianism of the church and the Reformed tradition continuing that on. That's something we need to be looking for in each era of church history. How is the church developing uh, organizationally? But we also see the church as an organism growing, um, expanding throughout the world. Uh, we might say uh, the territory of the world, the nations of the world are kissing the sun. Um, Christ has bound the strong man, and now he is spoiling his house and, and taking all of his goods. That's the uh, exciting part. Uh, well, one of the exciting parts I find in church history is seeing the, the success of the preaching of the gospel as Christ rides forth, as the word runs swiftly throughout the nations. And there's particular high points, right? You think about, for example, the, you know, the conversion of the barbarians in the patristic era. You know, the Romans think it's the end of the world. The barbarians are invading and Rome is crumbling. But it's not. It's the next part of Christ's plan to expand his church. Or the great century of missions in the 19th century, really exciting century, where we see, you know, the, the gospel go global um, in a way like it hasn't before. So there's lots of scriptural warrant for this, uh, this paradigm. And this isn't just, you know, me as a teacher trying to find a handy way to structure the class. We should always be looking for the church growing. I, I love the passage in Daniel uh, chapter two. You remember the vision that Nebuchadnezzar had of the great statue, you know, with the head of gold and the, the different uh, metals all the way down to the, uh, the, the feet, iron and clay. And, you know, virtually all commentators agree the head is, 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 is uh, Babylon because Daniel says it is. And then you've the, the, the kingdoms that followed. And when you get to the kingdom, the feet, which is the Roman Empire, it says in the days of those kings, the God of heaven uh, will establish a kingdom that will never pass away. And you remember the story, the rock that's cut out without human hands that smashes those kingdoms and then grows into a mountain that fills the whole earth. That's this paradigm. Um, the church is growing. Jesus says in Matthew 24, 14, that this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to all the nations and then the end will come. So this is an obvious paradigm that we should anticipate. Uh, and that's the first one. The second and third ones, uh, third ones go together, really. The second uh, paradigm I call um, external pressures. Um, Jesus also says that in these last days, from this first to second coming, Anno Domini, um, he is on the throne but Satan is still going to be busy trying to prevent uh, the kingdom growing. The gates of hell will not prevail. We, we know that, but it doesn't mean to say that they, they don't try. And so there's lots of texts that talk about this. Text I like to point to is uh, Revelation chapter 12, the great red dragon, uh, Satan, the serpent who is cast out. And um, he tries to devour the male child, which is Christ, who is caught up to heaven. And then we read um, in Revelation 12 that he goes to make war on the saints. 
the woman, the church, mm-hmm. and uh, and all those who call the name of Christ. And so throughout this period, we should expect war. We should expect Satan trying to um, uh, destroy the church one way or the other. Um, we read in that chapter that he uh, deceives the world. He had deceived the world in the Old Testament period. Now he is trying to um, uh, destroy uh, the church. And so church history is a story of an epic war. And we want to pull back the curtain of history from just the events that we see uh, to go further and say, no, there's there's a spiritual battle taking place here as well. And those two forms of opposition, they are both from outside the church, which is the story of the persecution of the church, church and state conflict, uh, hostile world religions, hostile rivals to Christianity. All of that is the theme we chart through each of the years of church history. And then the third paradigm is internal pressures. And this is how Satan tries to overthrow uh, the church from within with false teachers, heresies. And so as we go through each era of church history, we also look at this theme. What are the errors that appear and how did the church respond to them with her counsels and confessions and testimonies as well? So when we do this, we we uh, I begin each each uh, era of church history with a, an overview of the of the mm-hmm. chronology, the main people, the main events. We've got that. Then we go through these topics and we look for the progression of these things that Christ told us to look for. And I find it to be a helpful mechanism. There's just so much material, so many people, so many events. It's really hard to keep it all together. But if we can keep um, uh, packing it around these three themes, uh, I think it sticks better. And that's that's what I'm hearing anyway. Mm-hmm. And um, I've appreciated the the feedback I've got to hopefully make this even even better. But that's that's how I teach church history. Yeah, it's masterful. Good stuff. Aaron, were you going to say anything? No, no, go ahead. No, I was just going to say it's good. I mean, that's why we wanted to, wanted to have it shared with others, at least that basic three-point paradigm of church organization and structure, external pressures and internal pressures, and the way that you draw that from the Scripture's own theology and philosophy of history and what to look for is uh, is good stuff. So now's the bonus, or I'm not, not, not the bonus, but the mystery question. The mystery question that we ask everyone, and we thought since we were going to have the church history professor on this month, that we would ask our list or our uh, the, the guys we interview this month a question about the future. Question about the future, and so what we're wanting to to solve the problem we're wanting to solve this month with our uh, the guys we're interviewing is is there to be in the future a mass conversion of national Israel. Is all Israel there that's being talked about, is that a mass conversion of ethnic Jews as a nation unto the Lord, or is that just simply a uh, a spiritual reference to the Jew-Gentile church, or is that merely just referring to the full number of elect ethnic Jews? So as we look to the future, as the history professor looks to the future, does he see a future conversion a mass conversion of ethnic Israel. <laughs> well, that, that's a nice easy one. Uh, you, you guys <laughs> let me off really, really lightly here, didn't you? And, you know, I, I, I could you. just, I could just fob off that question and say I teach about the past of church history, not the future. You know, and that's ask someone else. We could make this the OPT section of the uh, podcast if you want. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you don't like what I say, you can just, you can just edit it out. Um, you, you know, the, the, so of course, I mean, this is a, a perennial question in, in our eschatology, and and I think in our um, in our Reformed um, Westminster Confessional tradition, as you guys know well, I mean, the traditional 
understanding of this text um, has always been that this is ethnic Israel, that there we should anticipate um, um, uh, a return of Israel. Not, not I, I think, I don't think it's saying every single uh, person of um, Israelite, ethnic Israelite extraction is going to be converted um, in, in the same way as, uh, you know, those who have a very optimistic understanding of the conversion of the nations, you know, do the texts uh, that, uh, like I, I quoted Matthew 24, 14, do these texts prophesy the Christianization of the globe or do they prophesy the evangelization of the globe? And I, and I, I lean more to the latter. I don't think that it's saying there will be an, a complete Christianization of the globe. Every, um, you know, every civil magistrate on earth entering into covenant simultaneously with Christ. I, that's, that's not the position I take. Um, a lot of people assume, though, that if you're going to reject that um, particular post-millennial interpretation of a Christianization of the globe, that you therefore are bound to reject the conversion of ethnic Israel. And I, I don't personally buy that. Um, I, I take the confessional position on this, um, so I'll put my cards to the table. I think it's referring to ethnic Israel. I think it is saying that we can anticipate in this eschaton in which we've been living for some time now, um, we can anticipate a time when the Jews will look upon the one whom they have pierced and mourned. Uh, I don't really see, I mean, I, I, I understand the other position that this is simply talking about um, the elect, not all who are Israel are Israel, and it's the, you know, it's the metaphorical Israel of all the elect of God. I, I don't see how you can look uh, at what Paul is saying here, particularly the Old Testament references he's quoting from, and interpret them as anything other than, um, than, than the historic ethnic people, uh, the Jews. Now, again, I'm not. We could quibble over the uh, the extent of this. We could quibble over: uh, is this going to be the full Christianization of you know the the current Israeli state or something like that? Um, we could we could get lost in the weeds there. I'm not certainly going to put my head in the block and and try to make. I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet, but um, I, I don't I don't know that we can say that. I, I find it interesting as an historian. Um, I, I don't have a premillennial bone in my body. I I, I have I, I I reject all premillennial forms of of eschatology because it denies the present reign of Jesus Christ as mediatorial king. Um, but I do find it just an intriguing fact uh, the return of uh, of um, uh, Jewish people to uh, to Palestine. Uh, that's not in any way um, holding me to a, a current political perspective in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, my loyalty lies with with my brothers and sisters in Christ who are Palestinian or who are Israeli. Um, that's my primary um, allegiance to the people of Christ. So um, I think it's simplistic to look at the return in 1948 and say um, this is part of some kind of premillennial eschatology. I think I'll be interested when we get to heaven to find out, did that play some role in the um, restoration of Israel prophesied in, in Romans 11? I think it would be interesting, uh, but I'm certainly not going to be dogmatic about that. We watch with interest. Uh, we look at the patterns of history. We believe that history is a record of God's providence. If he has said he is going to um, uh, draw the, the Jewish people to recognize that, that Jesus was the Messiah and that they bring their offerings to him, um, then I think we should anticipate that. I realize that does um, raise questions in people's minds about, well, then Jesus couldn't come back any day. That's correct. <laughs> uh, it means there are certain things that we should still anticipate um, in in, in uh, these last days in which we've been living for two millennia. Um, I can live with that. Um, so, so yeah, I, I don't know um, if that 
answers your question. Um, I don't know if you want to put that on the OPT and, and cut it out or not. Um, you know, I've read commentaries passionately argued on both sides. I think that some post-millennial interpreters, I, I stress some, I think would make this an over-realized eschatology. I realize some would say that what I've just said is an over-realized eschatology, but I think some people t um, I know will write the conversion of the Jews into a very detailed schema of what you know the next hundred years are going to bring in church history or something like that. And I think we need to be careful. I think we need to be careful. Um, I, I have very good friends who are full historicists and they're in understanding of, of the um, apocalyptic scriptures. Um, I hear the arguments. Some of it I find compelling. Some of it I find less than compelling. Um, I remember having a conversation with Kim Riddlebarger once about this. Um, you guys will know Kim wrote the uh, the book mm -hmm. Case for Amillennialism, right? And uh, you know he's you know he's he's not a post-millennialist at all, but he was honest enough to say to me that this is really a gentleman's disagreement between Amill and post-mill interpretations, and um, which I thought was generous because I because I, I read his book and he didn't seem very sympathetic. <laughs> Uh, to a more optimistic understanding, but um, but he also said, yeah, you you have to have some degree of historicism in your eschatology. Uh, otherwise, we just write off the interpretation of Daniel, for example, the statue I just mentioned. I mean, virtually everybody agrees which kingdoms in history this is referring to. We understandably get a little more uh, cautious when we get to the book of Revelation and try to discern, you know, which bowl of wrath are we on this week, and you know, who, what you know, who is the the third horn and the second head of the first beast, and and you know, we don't want to get too dogmatic about those things. It gets us into all kinds of trouble. Uh, we do know that Jesus wins, and uh, we do know that uh, He is coming again, and we know that He will come when the nations have received the gospel. Um, missiologists tell us we're getting close, but you know, in meantime, what we need to be doing instead of um, you know, looking off into the wild blue yonder is we need to be doing what we've been talking about. We need to be preaching Christ and um, we need to be doing that faithfully week by week. Charles Spurgeon had a funny quote. Uh, he he lived in a time when the Plymouth Brethren had really begun to emerge in a big way. And they're really, you know, Jan Darby and the rise of dispensationalism. And of course, you know, we've been living with that for a few centuries now. But he says, I want to say, ye men of Plymouth, why do you look up into the heavens um, Christ is going to come back the same way. You know, he's talking about Acts 1, you know, the angels come, why are you, mm -hmm. men of Galilee, yep. why are you looking yep. up the heavens? We can have that attitude, you see. I think we can we can be, you know, like the men of Plymouth, and we're, you know, we're reading their newspapers with the book of Revelation open, and we're trying to correlate the facts. And I think we need to be very, very careful about that, about date setting and so on. Uh, the way we interpret the apocalyptic scriptures, we've got to be very careful. Um, Romans 11 is not written in the genre of apocalyptic. Uh, nor, for that matter, is Second Thessalonians chapter two, or the Olivet discourse. Although there are metaphorical phrases in there drawn from the, the the Old Testament prophets, so I think we need to look to our hermeneutics to answer this question um, with any degree of certainty. I think we need to be not too dogmatic about the details of it, but I think Jewish evangelism uh, has historically been a really big slice of the missiological pie for Reformed Presbyterians. Um, and I invite you, your listeners to go to rparchive.org and, and read that, you know, the Hebrew messenger, we had Jewish missions in our denomination. Um, many of us support Christian witness to Israel, um, as a viable mission. And, um, I think as the eschatological winds change from post mill to amil in the RPCNA and other Presbyterian denominations, 
Jewish missions basically became disenfranchised. And um, understandably, with all the horrors of the anti-Semitism of the 20th century, I understand people want to tiptoe, perhaps, and be, be particularly careful around this subject. But I think that we need to be doing more intentional Jewish evangelism. Um, whether we accept the uh, restoration uh, of the Jews in Romans 11 or not, uh, that is a people group that there are more Jews living outside of Israel in North America than anywhere else. Mm-hmm. We have a massive uh, ministry uh, ministry field on our doorstep, and uh, we need to tell them who Jesus is. All right. Well, I think that's uh, two for two for uh, mass conversion of the Jews. Uh, so we'll see what our uh, other guests say the rest of the uh, month here. But uh, our guest this uh, uh, recording has been the Scotch-Irish version of The Mandalorian, Dr. David Whitlow, <laughs> Church History Professor of RPTS. Uh, you can find uh, some of his works on Crown and Covenant, the Sum of Saving Knowledge, and a book called uh, Portraits of Christ that he co-authored as well. So, David, thank you so much for giving us uh, your time here today. It's a pleasure. Pleasure. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yep. All right. Well, in the meantime, you can uh, rate and review this podcast on iTunes, whatever podcast catcher you use. You can share this episode on social media. If you have a question that you would like us to ask uh, the pastors that we have on this podcast, or if you'd like to recommend that we interview your pastor, you can email us at bluebanterpodcast at gmail.com, bluebanterpodcast at gmail.com. And until next time, whether you eat, drink, or banter, do all to the glory of God. Thank you.